Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, our guest this week is guitarist Ivan Julian. Ivan is a very, very unique figure in the CBGB's punk scene of the late 70s in New York City. As you guys know, that is like one of my favorite periods of rock music ever. So he starts out as a founding member of Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And he's playing on the Blank Generation album, which is one of the classic albums of that period. One of the best that was ever made. It's got Blank Generation, Love Comes in Spurts, all that stuff. Well, the band is kind of short-lived. Unfortunately, a lot of those bands were around that time. And he goes on and starts some other bands, many other projects. None of them last too, too long. He produces some people like the Flesh Tones, John Spencer Blues Explosion. He goes on to play with people like The Clash. He's featured on Sandinista. He tours with Matthew Sweet, with Shriekback. There's all these other artists. Um, and then he also puts out occasionally his own solo albums. He's got a new one coming out in February, February 17th, I believe, called Swing Your Lanterns. And he let me hear it, and it is fantastic. Now, we did this interview over the summer, and I've been hanging on to it for a while because at the time, his new album was almost done, and he was shopping it around. He didn't quite have a distributor for it yet. And so I've been hanging on to it, waiting for confirmation of when this album is going to come out, and now we know it's going to be February. And there's even a new single, the first single off of it called Can't Help Myself, is on Spotify. So I did. I wanted to wait until we could back up this conversation with some stuff that you could actually go out there and listen to and check out, and it's finally available. So keep your eyes peeled for Swing Your Lanterns. Go check out Can't Help Myself. Go look at all of his other solo stuff. We talk about some of the other obscure, kind of cool, one-off uh collaborations he's done over his career i just and what it's like to be a black man in the punk scene of new york in the 70s uh i he doesn't seem to think that that's really all that unique i thought it was but because there aren't that many anyway great stories to be told by a guy who lived it and was a part of one of the biggest musical movements of my lifetime that i love to listen to all right he called me from his home in new york all right, so Ivan, uh, here I've been, you know, preparing this interview for a while now, and literally hours ago, you informed me that you have a new album coming out, and send me the link to it. I think it's called "Swing Your Lanterns," right? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay, I didn't even know this was in play, and I've only had a chance to listen to it once, but I love it. First of all, it's really only your second solo album, and the other one is Naked Flame is excellent. I'm not here to try to deceive you. I came to these asses just to be by your side. Come on and take my hand and try to be courageous. The spots may fly so baby. Without you, I curse today because you're so far away. 
Why don't you make more solo recordings? What's the story behind this one? What's going on? Well, I mean, my um, philosophy, if you could call it that on this whole thing, is as long as I'm involved in making music, I'm making ah, music. If I'm producing point. something which takes up time, or you see I'm here in my studio if I'm trying to get everything to work, you know. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I mean, I I'm not really funded, you know what I mean? Because I'm... I uh, had a label for the Naked Flame. I'm still looking for a label for this one. And, um, you know, I refuse to release it on Spotify and all those things and make zero, 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 zero point nine cents. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'd rather get some vinyl pressed out and go ride around in the van and, kill, you know, and, and do it that way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's just basically my, my mindset. I, I, I just, I, I, you know, if, like I said, if I'm, if I'm producing someone, to me, I'm making music, you know. And, I mean, also, I mean, I write, pretty pro prolifically but when it comes to actually making an album um it, it, it takes me time i mean uh, you know i mean in this last one i mean swing your lanterns i mean as you might know I and mean, i was ill for a while and when i i didn't know this off, what were you ill with i was ill with cancer dude I, really? I was like no i was this far from being gone i was this what? far from being gone. what's the story <laughs> what kind of cancer i i mean you tell as much or as little as you want it was lower intestinal ca intestinal cancer you know i've always eaten pretty well i play tennis i swim you know i try to stay away from red meat and all that and you know when you go into these kind of i don't know institutionalized um you know hospitals and you know where it's pretty much a bureaucratic system they yeah. Very little, but they have to sell their things, so therefore they, you know, try try to get you through it the best way they can. So they couldn't tell me how I got it. I mean, I, I and I was very frank with them. I said, "Listen, in my I'm a musician. In my time, I've done this and I've done that and I've done that, and then I did some more of this and I did some more of that and I did this." And they said, "Well, that, none of that had anything to do with it." I went really. Um, so that was um, back in oh, 2015, 16, and I didn't really recover from the whole thing till 2017. You know, so that's when um, I, th I th thought to myself, I thought, okay, who really helped me get through this? And it was the music community because there's this huge benefit, you know, uh, pretty much organized by Richard Hell, who, you know, he came, definitely came to my aid. But like, um, you know, I, I yeah, I, 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 I wasn't thinking about money at the time, of course, because I was feeling so awful. But yeah, so that, so then when I came, I thought, well, yeah, the, the music community has really helped me out of this. Music has really helped um, helped me on this. Any other, you know, people I was working for just kind of said, "Well, hope you get better. See ya." Um, so I decided when I when I finally um, uh, was cured or you know came back, I'm going to spend all my time writing and making this album. So that's what I've been doing. Wow, wow. I mean, it's a, probably a huge wake up call, and from that you decide. If I if my time is limited, I'm going to spend my time doing what I want to do, which is making music. Is that the yeah? If, yeah. If you talk to other people that have been through the same situation, that's pretty much the reset that you come out of with this. It's like okay, you. I mean, it, your mind is a crazy thing, a strange thing. It's because I, I've talked to people like uh, about the pandemic, about this too, when you're completely um, in solitude, alone with yourself, and you know your mind says, well, what you know, what have you done? I mean, you, I mean. You, you, you haven't done this. You haven't done that. You just wasted time doing this. Mm -hmm. So you kind of reset yourself. I mean, I remember one morning lying there and I, I couldn't get up just thinking, you know what? 
you've been a total jerk to everybody and you're always like an asshole and you, you know, and then in the next five minutes, I, I would think, wow, you're such a wuss. You let everybody run over. You. <laughs> <laughs> so your mind just goes back. And right. Between it's quite right. Odd. Yeah. So when is the new album coming out? Well, when is it available? I mean, if it's not on a label, when can people hear it? Well, it's out, it's out in France. They pressed up some and they're okay. selling it in France. And I mean, but I'm still looking for a label in, in the States. I mean, they can, they can't hear it until I find someone to, you know, um, press up some, some vinyl and, um, and then I'll do, you know, press for the record and everything. So right now it's just kind of a advanced copy kind of thing, you know? Ooh. It's so good when you, I mean, the quality level, uh, there may not be a lot of solo material or not just, so, but I mean like the outsets and the lovelies and stuff like that. Your quality control is so high that anything you put your name on is it, it usually is awesome, you know? And Swing Your Lanterns is no different. Where does something like this go? Can you get played on the radio? Can it? Is it for love at this point? I hope that it gets played on the radio. I mean, the last record got played on the radio. I mean, that's Good. that's the ultimate goal is to share it with everybody. You know? Yeah, yeah. But I, once again, I, I I really don't want to do this new model of um, Bandcamp and you know Spotify and all that because I I just don't. I think my record deserves more than that. Yeah, quite honest, it does. I mean. Yeah, and thank you for the compliment. I mean, I I love making records. I've always loved hearing records, and and, and when I got the opportunity to make them, I always feel honored and, and humbled, you know. Because yeah. you go back to I love recordings. I yeah. love recording. One of yeah. my favorite recordings. Um, I mean, you might strike some people strange. Is Frank Sinatra with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra doing his hits on Capitol Records? Uh, that's that a legendary thing, album. Yes, huh? that's a that? legendary album. Yeah, it just sounds so great, you know? I mean, I've heard Three Coins in a Fountain before and never paid attention to right. it, you know? But that record sounds amazing. Really, Yes, really it cool. does. Um, are you? Did you record it right there in your home studio? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a thing. I, that, that took me time, too, because um, I left my other studio and I realized I didn't have a mixing board, so I had to gather, some, you know, look around for deals and gather gear and take what gear I had and then um, bring it to a new location. Okay. Are the floodgates open now? I mean, is it going to be, it can't, I can't imagine another 11 years before another Ivan Julian solo album at this pace, at this pace. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's possible, but you never know. <laughs> well, I was, I mean, if, if this is really a, you know, almost a life or death situation, 
and there's limited time. I'm guessing you've got a lot of things in your mind and in your heart that you want to get out there. I do. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. I'm excited. Do you, um, when you put, when you work on albums like this, I'm, so here's the deal. I have been truthfully, I have had a love and a fascination with that New York scene of the seventies for decades. In fact, I had mm -hmm. Lenny Kay on here recently and we were talking about his new book and we were talking about that period and everything like that. And you came up in this, what was in your mind, what was happening at that time that allowed all these bands to be so unique, but also so special? Well, it was kind of the, 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 uh, the political scene at, at, at the time in the, in the seventies. I mean, uh, to encapsulate an answer, I would have to say so many people, including myself, because at the time I was living in Europe. Okay. Yeah. I was thing. So so many people, including myself, almost got this like, um, pilgrimage call to come mm -hmm. to New York. Cause that was the one place where you could play your own music, regardless of what kind it was. Mm -hmm. So if you were an act like at CBS at, you know, any given night and you talked to with the dead boys and you talked to, um, yeah, Richard and you talked to other people, they're from Ohio, they're from Kentucky. They're from D.C. And they, for, for some reason, they all convoluted c c here. They all like yeah. came together, you know, at yeah. this point in time. And I, and I didn't give it much thought at first. But then after like about six months or so, I really started to think about it, you know, because it seemed like all these people had been called to this one location yes. room on the Bowery. Much yeah. like, um, you know, the um, jazz period in the 50s with, um, you know, Swing Street and all that, you know, and Parker and, and, on, and Miles Davis and all those people coming here. It was much, much the same thing. And uh, un un unlike, um, in, I mean, popular, popular belief, um, you know, there was more than one genre of music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they called it punk because it was more punk in spirit. But I mean, there's a lot of di there's a big difference between what you were doing and what Talking Heads were doing and Ramones were doing and television was doing. It's all these different like tentacles, you know? Yeah. But I got, I mean, so the media had to call it something. Yeah. Um, there was a magazine because also I, I like to talk about this too. It's like, it wasn't just musicians that were part of the scene. There oh, were filmmakers, there were right, you know, there were writers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there was a magazine called pump magazine that was kind of like, um, on a cream or something like that mm -hmm. for the scene or, or rock scene or something where, you know, it had pictures of people and, and that CBs had the news and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but they named it punk magazine. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, I mean, that's where the, it kind of, um, the phrase kind of came from. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Wasn't, uh, I'm guessing like, wasn't fab five Freddy probably around and, um, Julian Schnabel, I think may have come from the scene. And they weren't yeah. just doing, you know, punk music, so to speak, or whatever. Yeah, Jarmish, you know. Yeah, Basquiat, all these kind. Of, yeah, good point. Amos Poe. Yeah, you know? yeah. What I mean, you probably get asked this all the time. I'm going to ask it anyway because I mean, as a as a black man, you're an outlier in that scene. Did it ever feel that way? The general question about race, I mean, is is usually um, broken down into into a stereotype of you know racial relations um between well two races let's say you know black and white in this country and there's there's so much there's so much more to it than that especially when you look at it from the outside like i do because i spent so much of my formative years outside of this country 
mm-hmm. you know? So it, when I came here, it, it was something I noticed that happened. I mean, that, that was happening. And I couldn't really understand why. And to be honest, I, the more I live and the more I see, I still don't understand why. And, and not only that, there's a lot of gray matter as well, because not everybody grows up in segregated, you know, uh, communities of all, all one race or a walled-in community of all one race. I mean, especially in America, it's, it's, it's just so much more diverse than that. And I mean, I mean, a good analogy, I mean, a good story um, about this is when I, when we were in Cuba, okay, on Guant- in Guantanamo, and we were there during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which meant um, we were evacuated fairly quickly. I was seven, eight years old, I think. And um, I went to school that morning. And then about 1130, I, um, the teacher uh, went to the door and answered the door because we were in these separate kind of huts. And she answered the door. And um, then she started crying. I'm like, oh, dear, I've never seen that before. Um, and then... Um, she told us all to get get our things, get on the bus. We got on the school bus, went home. My mother had everything that she could packed, okay? And then this kind of cattle car, the best way I could describe it, took everybody from the neighborhood and took us to down to the docks where the ships were. And at the docks, they had all these clothes spread out on tables. Now, th- there was some uh, a degree of um, uh, uh, cult, class, um, structure on the base because it was divided into a military class. So therefore, all the lower officers lived in one part of the base. All the you know enlisted men lived in another part of the base, and the high office officers on an, on another. And you rarely saw uh, each other. Um, but on this one day, everybody was thrown together down at the dock. And I remember this officer's mother. I mean, excuse me, this officer's wife came up to my mother and said. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? When she's crying and my mother said, you're going to grab some clothes and get on the boat just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of formative to me. I thought, huh, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't see it any other way. Then we came back and like I said, we left in such a hurry. There was no real place for us to stay. So everybody was making arrangements with their relatives and whatever. <clears throat> and I was sent down to my father's um hometown which is in southern maryland in st mary's county and i stayed with my cousins there and we were raised catholic and um it came time to go to church so i go with them and i go to church and i walk in and i sit down in this pew and all my cousins run over to me and go no you can't do that you can't do that and i go well why not mm-hmm. um granted i'm seven at the time i'm going why not and they're saying well that's the white section oh and on the left is the colored section and I went, really? <laughs> in church, too? What's yeah, going on here? You know, gosh. I mean, and, and it's not like I have some utopian view of the world where I think, okay, you know, everybody's great. I mean, it, you know, there's lots of evil out there of all shades and colors, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think xenophobia is like a, you know, a, a real problem. When you don't interact with people, you don't get to know them. I mean, and I, I take that from the stance of, of um, Malcolm X, his autobiography. Yeah. It really changed my life because... I mean, it, it's a story of redemption, it's a story of, of a person that like finds themselves and, and grows, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's really, and it, ha- and it helps you define yourself too, regardless of what, what race you are. If you read that book, it's like, I'm, well, wait, I can't let other people define me. Yeah. I have to define myself. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and whatever situation, you know, I'm in, I mean, and, and this leading up to CBs, I mean, have you ever heard of Fugazi? 
Oh yeah, of course. You ever heard of the Bad Brains? Yes, of course. We, um, the producer of Fugazi and HR and I all went to the same high school. And, uh, really? It's really weird, a weird thing, yeah. yeah we, no we all went way. Within like one or two years of each other, yeah. Ted Nicely the, hit the producer, and then, you know, HR Paul, I mean, what's the uh-huh. problem? And, and yeah, we were all in the same high school, you know? No way. So leading up to that, I mean, then from that, it's like, so when I go to CBs, I see lots of people like myself. Do that you? are looking okay. for a way to express themselves. And I think a lot of people, not everyone, of course, but a lot of people, you know, felt that way as well. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it was kind of, like I said, this pilgrimage, this Mecca, and we didn't know why, you know, yeah. we didn't know why we gravitated to this, um, you know, tiny room on the Bowery, you know, in, in the uh-huh. ghetto at the time in the lower, lower east side of New York City. You so know? let me, let me ask you this because you, you just touched on my biggest question. When you said you went to CBS and you saw a lot of people by your that looked like you, are you talking about other black people? I, because no, I didn't say yeah, looked so like that, me. I said other people like me. Like you, okay, yes, good point. Waited. That's the that's the differentiator. Because that's my question: is why is it you were just talking a second ago about people wanting to define themselves? That's a universal trait. That's not a black thing or a white thing. Everybody wants to do that. Why do you think it is that more black teenagers or whatever? Back then, maybe it's less so now, want to define themselves in the punk world or in the DIY world or in the that musical world. It seems like, I don't know, there's just not as much diversity in there. There's you, there's HR, there's the guys from Living Color that came later, a few others here and there. But why do you think it is that they don't see themselves in that scene? Well, see, I have to disagree with that because, like, good. Okay. I mean, if, okay. Let's put it this way. I mean, if you look at it, um, you know, um, uh, as a demographic, I mean, that how many, what percentage of black people are there in this country compared to white? So I think there's probably the same percentage of oh, black good point. people. I hadn't thought of that. You, you know? might be right. Yes. Good um, point. Because it's going back to like, you know, high school and Ted Nicely, there was a whole legion of black people that were into like, say, things like Funkadelic and, yeah. you know, Stones and all that. And um, and we all kind of gravitated together, you know, because of, of music. Um, right. And and also when I got when I came to, to New York, um, there was I mean there's so many bands at CBS that no one's ever heard of. There was one called The Planets, mm-hmm. and um, The Planets were a band that um, had a black lead singer. I think his name is Haley. I think um, right. had a black lead singer, and they were one of the first bands to play there. There was Neon Leon. Who, there you are. There was Neon. No, you went away again. <laughs> really? Neon, Weird. Yeah, you, you were there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Anyway, there was Neon Leon, who was part of the whole um, glam scene out of Max's Kansas City. He was there long before anybody else, you know. And not that, you know, I, I emulated or, you know, had it, or mm-hmm. him or anything or even like, you know, um, related him to him in a lot of ways. We talked, we knew each other, we liked each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there were, there were people, it's just people that you don't hear about, you know? Okay, that makes sense. Okay. And I like what you said then about the population, the percentages of black people in the country is, I don't know what, 20% or something like that. Maybe it's higher. And that might be, that might be reflected in the punk scene of New York in the 70s too. You're right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's other reasons, of course, because, I mean, punk, I mean... Punk was pre- presented, I think, um, to the U.S. I mean, as an English phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part. By the time it got out to like whatever the Midwest and, and places away from the coast, it was yeah. presented as an English phenomenon, which um, you know, most um, I, I, I would imagine, you know, white kids um, kind of 
identified with more than black. I, I don't know. You Probably. know, I mean, that's the other thing about uh, that to me in punk is like here, what we call punk was like a, a kind of a, a, a creative artistic expression. And uh -huh. being in England at the time, and I was in England, remember, I was in England before I joined the Vordois. I saw what was happening there in like in 75 or 76, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Everybody was on the dole, so to speak. I mean, everybody was on welfare. I mean, th inflation was crazy. It, 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 it was nuts. So therefore, to me, it was like punk in England was more of a political statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and uh, reflected so, you know, with the, you know, uh, how the cops treated everybody and how the cops yeah. would round clash concerts, you know, with like, mm -hmm. I don't know, 200, 300 bodies or whatever, thinking that there was going to be a riot, you know? Mm -hmm. Good point. Uh, side question. Did you ever, speaking of black people in that scene at that time, did you ever rub shoulders with Dig Wayne? Do you remember him? He Say was again? Dig Wayne. He was the front man of a rockabilly band called Digging the Flyers. And then he moved to England and he fronted the Joe Boxers. Made a big hit with Just Got Lucky. Anyway, I don't. He was on here very early on in the podcast, and we talked a little bit about this too because he had come from Ohio and he was a black kid, but he was really into rockabilly, which wasn't normal, you know, in Ohio. And anyway, I just wondered if that name rang a bell or anything. No, like that. I never met him, but that's a really interesting, great story. I mean, yeah, and, and um, backs up what I'm, you know, what I'm saying. Yeah, it it's, does. I mean, you yeah, try to find a place where you can, you know express yourself if that's important to you that's right yeah he's great anyway okay when you went to the uk to join the associates i mean that had i from what i can tell that was probably your first i don't know big break is the right word but that's really you finally making a living as a professional musician and you're out there yeah. performing a song build me a buttercup that people know yeah, why did you foundation what did i say the associates Oh, I didn't. No. The association and the foundation. Yeah, that's, that, yes, okay. I screwed that up. Anyway, the foundation, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Anyway, you're out there with the foundation, and why Why did you leave? I mean, I would think a guy who went to, kind of like you just did, talked about going to New York, you went to London to do something similar, you got a job. Was it difficult to leave that job? Where Did you, why not stay there? Stay, oh, stay in, um, in, in Europe? Yeah. Well, because the foundations, um, first of all, when I met them, I thought, I, I thought the foundations were from Detroit uh -huh. because it, it was a soul song, you know, and it had that groove, and I, I thought they were from Detroit, and, and, you know, they could go, no, they were all from Barbados and Jamaica, you know, and they go, no, mom, no, no, no. It's like, so um, they had their hits when I was like 11 years old. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, but... Now they're at the point in their career. Well, I think we went in the studio once to do some minor thing, but they're just playing all the time, yeah. like literally eight days a week. I remember getting home one morning at five and just putting my head on the pillow and the call in the lead singer calls me and says, get up. We got to go to a gig. I'm like, you got to be kidding. You know, but that's what they did. They just toured and toured and toured. And I wanted to make records. Yeah. You know, I want yeah. to be in a band records. And so eventually, I mean, I just said, you know, I, guys, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know? Yeah. I mean, I loved it. it was definitely, like you said, it was my first, you know, professional job. It was music 101, mm -hmm. you know, touring 101, you know, you, you, you got to learn that stuff somewhere. And I'm glad I learned it with them, you know, before I got here. <laughs> Couldn't you have stayed though in London and eventually hooked, I mean, applied yourself to the same scene as Billy Idol and Adam Ant and Pistols yeah, and all that, that kind of stuff? Yeah, but I mean, 
uh, you know, I mean, it was more cliquish than than even New York was London, you know, oh, because I mean, the, unless you really had a way of kind of, you know, making a splash. I mean, a lot of things were reserved for, you know, in London people. Besides that, I mean, I was there without a work permit. So it was, I was on the ice anyway. But the real story is we had gone over to then Yugoslavia. Uh-huh. Um, toward there with, and with an uh, and uh, with a guy named Dado Topic, she's a huge star there. Um, and um, it was there I, I, I had enemy and, and all those English papers, and um, I kept hearing this kind of pounding on the ground about New York City and what's happening there, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I hadn't really no knowledge of it before. And I kept hearing about all the stuff like you know, this band's there and they're playing at this place called CBGB's, and you know, people are writing their own music. So that's when I decided, okay, I'm not going to go back to London with the band. I'm going to like um, just go to New York and, and see, see what's going on there. Um, because, um, and so then I um, played with the opening band called Parne Bayak, which means steamroller, you know, because it's, it was really great because we, you know, at the time, especially, um, we kind of ignorant and in, in, in about Eastern European culture. You know, because I expected them all to be running around with rocks in their backs singing Volga Boatman or something like that. Meanwhile, they knew all about all this American music. You know, that's yeah. how some of us didn't really speak that much of each other's language, which I learned eventually, kind of. But, you know, we had that one bond, which was music, and it was it was great. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I joined, their, didn't join their band, but they just let me play with them until I could get my papers together and all that. Great. And um, then, I, then I came to New York. But, um, yeah, that's okay. That's, that's, okay. So tell me then about, joining up with Richard Hell and being in the Voidoids. It's short-lived, but that one album is legendary and songs like Blank Generation come from that and everything. Love comes in spurts. So why was it short-lived? You know, a lot of those bands were short-lived. Television didn't last very long. New York Dolls didn't last very long. Not really, not comparatively. Why was everything so up and down, so tumultuous? Well, in our case, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the elephant in the room is drugs, okay? First yeah, okay. But in our, which makes people very volatile. But I mean, in our case, Richard never liked being a musician. He did, and he hated the music industry. He only became a musician because he was a poet. He saw this as a backdrop for his poetry, you know, but in terms of like being on stage and, you know, dealing with the record company and touring, he hated it immensely. So when the leader of the band hates touring, you know, and, you know, and doesn't really want to go and work and stuff, it's hard, 
it's difficult. I mean, Mark and I had both toured, you know, Mark, Mark Bell or Mark Ramon had both toured. So, you know, we knew, we knew the drill, make a record, go out and promote it, you know, yeah. but yeah. Richard wanted no, no, ask no part of that. So it's, it's kind of amazing that it lasted as long as it did. Crazy. And from that brief period, these classics emerge. Did he not see a, a comrade or a kindred spirit in Patti Smith, who was also, I think, sort of the poet first and a musician second? Well, uh, well, they have their own relationship. You have to talk to Richard about that. But, I mean, they were the ones. I mean, Hilly had a motorcycle club, right, on, on the Bowery, and they were performing at or reading at St. Mark's, Mark's Church. Mm. And they wanted you know, a bigger venue or a better venue or something like that. So I think the two of them at the time went to CB's okay. and have been silly to let them play. Huh. I just wonder if Richard wanted to focus more on poetry, but was good at making music and here Patty was doing something similar. He might've thought, well, there's a direction for me. I can do kind of similar to what she's doing. How involved were you in, I know you play on the album, obviously, but are you involved in the writing process at all? Or are you, you know, contributing licks, lyrics? What are you doing? Um, you have the record? <laughs> I do, yeah. Look on the label, yeah. I, I wrote... Oh, I have that. I don't have a physical copy of it. I'm sorry. I have okay. a that's yeah, the, soft that's copy. Today. Like, What's that? That's the tragedy of today. It no one has really is. Really is. No, oh my God. Um, but anyway, no, yeah, I wrote uh, two songs in the record with Richard. Um, Liars Beware and Betrayal Takes Two. I wrote the intro to the Blank Generation. You did? Yeah. Nice. You know, credited for it, but everybody knows it, you know I mean? Because right. Rich wanted um, an intro to the song because before it was just the, you know, the down chord thing. And he goes, we need an intro. We, we need an intro at this rehearsal. And I, you know, I started doing this thing and, and he goes, I like that. So then, you know, I developed it and it became the intro. Yeah. When it, uh, when it ended, was your next step to go start the outsets did you were you invited to join any of the other bands we would know at the time no not at the time i mean okay um my next step was to go and and, and develop the outsets because i you know i wanted my own band and i wanted to keep playing you know yeah. and I, I and then yeah so that that was um because i mean conditions in the voids had become almost intolerable and i went to richard so like, you know I, i'm i'm finished like you know okay and and um, I think he was finished with the situation too, because he, you know, made that second album, Destiny Street, and all that. I mean, with you know, with other people. Um, but I mean, just it was, yeah. So my, to answer your question, 
yeah, I wanted to start the outsets. But going back to what we were talking about before, you know, I mean, when I joined the Voidoids, um, they had like two and a half songs, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, though, I mean, the, the way it would work is like, you know, we would sit in the room for hours and Bob and I would come up with parts, making sure that neither one of us was in the same part of the neck as the other one. Uh -huh. You know, our model was the Yardbirds. You know, especially uh, uh, over under sideways down album. We're like, you know, you have two guitar players. Neither one is lead. Neither one is rhythm. You know, right. so we're all doing things and we're weaving. And that's that's what that was about. So, yeah, we were constantly coming up with licks and, you know, parts and things like that for songs and arranging. You know, I mean, the actual first copy of Blank Generation, which it, yeah, if you can find, it says on the inside cover, you know, produced by Richard Goddard, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, you know, because right. we all because Goddard um, was from a, a girl band period, you know, yeah. uh, you know, but my, my boyfriend's back and all that. Mm -hmm. So when he got assigned to us, or I, I'm not sure how that went. Um, I know there was a production deal involved um, maybe when he got attracted to us. So however you want to put it, mm -hmm. he didn't know what he was getting into, you know, with, you know, Bob and I on guitar and, you know, Richard and, and Mark and he just didn't know how to kind of hold it together. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, you know, we, you know, we basically did a lot of that work ourselves. Yeah. What was, um, you know, the, you guys and television obviously take this two guitar idea to the, to its heights. Was that, did you discuss this with each other first? Was it just a coincidence? You were both in the same place making this revolutionary music with two guitars. Did you ever well, discuss your philosophy with them? We had idols like everybody else, yeah, you know, that yeah. we modeled ourselves after, you know, we yeah. both, all of us were like Keith and you know, Stones fans, um, any bands with like two guitar players that where there wasn't just a, a one lead guitar player wanking and then, you know, the rest of everybody else just kind of playing chords behind them or, you know, everybody playing the same bar chord at the same time. So, I mean, yeah, we, we, we loved bands that weaved and, um, uh, and, and like I said, it was a conscious decision with Bob and I, because if we saw that one, you know, like I was playing G down here, then Bob would, you know, play another G on another part of the neck and vice versa. Love it. You know? Love it. I love you know? that. And it, yeah, it was, it was great. It was, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, it's like, it was, um, it was creative, you know, it was, yes. it was really creative exercise, you know, because you'd have to think about what, what you're doing and, you know, and, and then, you know, present it to everybody. Hope it doesn't get thrown down. <laughs> Especially, <laughs> I was the youngest, you know, so it's kind of weird. Good point. That too. Good point. You know? Yeah. Okay. So when you go and join the out and start, I should say, not join, but begin the outsets. Had you been a frontman before? Were you was singing, being out front, singing songs, being the main, you know, focus? Was that was that comfortable for you? It was to me being on stage is being on stage. It was. I mean. Okay. You know, it's like I'd done it a couple of times in D.C., but I didn't. I did not have. I mean, it's not like I was terrified of doing it. I just um, did not have any, you know, um, history of doing it, you know, and, and or anything like that. You know, um, I guess I, you know, developed some of my chops, some of my not chops, but just um, experience there. And experience is what I'm looking for. I didn't have any experience doing it uh, at all. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, were you a prolific songwriter up to that point when you joined the outsets? Was it a matter when you started? I keep, I keep saying joined when you started the outsets, did you have a, a backlog of songs that you'd been kind of carrying around with you that you were now ready to get off your chest? 
50-50. Um, I had some, like, you know, leftovers to, from the Voidoids period that, like, just never yeah. came. And, and I also locked myself in a room for, like, six months and just wrote and um, forgot to pay the rent. This wasn't a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> no one understood me. I don't know. It's like, but I had, mm-hmm. I had songs. We needed songs. So I just sat there and, like, and I would just, you know, um, focus on writing. Yeah, yeah. Dancing in the Dark is such a classic. How come only, I mean, I know eventually the whole, there was that uh, voodoo. Originally, there was just that EP. Again, short-lived. Why? A band is a hard thing to maintain in New York City. Yeah. You know, okay. do the best you can, and you can survive as long as you can. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's New York City, and it's really expensive. And, you, and especially if you're the band leader, you have to provide some kind of, you know, income for everybody and, and, and for their time, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine this. I don't know how kids do it this, these days because I mean then our rent was like I don't know it had climbed up to two sixty two hundred sixty dollars which I thought was completely outrageous yeah. you know and now that you know <laughs> lucky if you can find a place for less than you know two or three grand I mean yeah. how can you stand and start a band unless it's um you know you're subsidized somehow by someone you know good point yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's you- why I did. that's why because I mean I I'm still in well actually I mean the outsets yeah um yeah. I mean, yeah. That, I mean, then our you know our bass player died as well. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. So yeah. yeah, when you are you is it a kind of a squatters thing in New York at that time? Are you guys just sort of trying to live freely and burned out old apartment buildings, or how do you have your own place? I'm trying to imagine the environment here. I had I had actually at one time I think I had one guitar. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm not going to stay in a burned out place. Right. Okay. Okay. But I. Did. <laughs> I did counselor for a while, yeah, you know, yeah. and then when I forgot to pay, get to pay the rent, there was a guy named Giorgio Gamelski. Huh. You know who he is? Uh-uh. He used to manage, manage the Stones and the Yardbirds, and he had set himself up in New York City. He had a building on 24th Street, an entire building. Um, uh, I think he produced um, the Yardbirds live album. Yeah. Okay. And I became friends, so he said, you know, just come and live on the second floor. So I, I did I did that, and I rehearsed in the basement, so I did that for That's almost great. a year, you know. And I mean, I gotta, everybody had their own places, though, because um, some people had day jobs as well. Yeah, know? true, true. I got to ask, were you strung out at the time very much? I've never been strung out on heroin. Okay. Um, I've had my problems with cocaine. Yeah. Um, 
never been strung out on heroin. Um, I remember when I was had a place and it was all popular, and you know, and I thought I'd try it, and it it just made me vomit, and I thought, well, that's I don't like that. Yeah. And then this over and she says, "Oh, you know, you got to shoot it in your arm, or you're not a man." I said, "Not a man." There we go. Not to pass judgment. I mean, it just never was attractive to me. You know. Good. I mean, thank goodness, right? Yeah, because I mean, it's uh, you know, I've seen it really mess people up. You know, I bet you have. Player, you know, because the thing about heroin, people don't realize, is that um, it, the, the strength varies batch to batch. Yeah, and I think they can handle it. And and this, I mean, they, they you know, and they, they romanticize it, and then they start doing it, and um, then this batch comes into town that's stronger than anything, and people start dying. Yeah, you know, regardless of what their background, you know. Yeah. True. Were the outsets able to go on tour? Were you, um, I mean, I, and maybe even, maybe you played CBs, but did you play anywhere else? Were you getting outside yeah, of yeah. New York City? We did the East Coast a lot. We okay. did Canada. Um, we, <laughs> Richard and I have such a wild, crazy relationship. We even had a, a tour that we did opening for Richard, a national tour opening for Richard, hey. where we were the Voidoids and then you know, and, and you know, we were the outsets opening, uh-huh. and then when we go off stage, and we came back on with Richard, and then we were Richard's band, you know, and we did a national tour like that. Some of the some of the promoters weren't too happy. Yeah, you know? yeah, because they're basically paying you know two you know, two, you know different salaries for one of band. You know? Of course, but oh, that'd be a killer show. <laughs> I, I I mean, I grew up in Salt Lake City, and I was born in '73, so I was a long ways. From anywhere near that scene at that time, but yeah. I have such a love and a and fascin- fascination with it now. I love Salt Lake City. There's a lot really of, a lot of great music fans there. People love music. Yes, they do. I've been there, believe it or not, several times. Okay, so this is a question I ask sometimes because sometimes I get the weirdest stories. Tell me a Salt Lake City story. Have you performed there or passed through there? Anything leap to mind? I mean, okay, it, it, it's a it's a cliche, yeah. but I was really amazed when we went out to eat, and every and the people that are bringing us the little airline bottles of, of alcohol <laughs> are all wearing white gloves. I'm like, what is this about? You know, I mean, and someone explained it to me that you know, as a Mormon, you're not allowed to touch alcohol, but they do have to have it in the restaurant. So that's what um, what that was all about. Um, yeah, that's the one thing that stood out. People were nice, you know. The yeah. city's beautiful, you know. Yeah, were you there also with this, Matthew? Huh? Were you there with what? Matthew Sweet? I was there with Matthew. I've seen a lot of the country with Matthew and with Shriekback, um, because you know Richard and I did we based we did the Midwest and we did um, you know, some of the East Coast and then um, uh, the West Coast. But I mean, okay, a lot of that I, I saw with Matthew and, Shri- and with Shriekback. But okay. also, in the, is it Henneman's Pass? There's some past that when the Mormons were, were uh, when they founded the place, uh-huh. they came to, do you know about this? It's I'm not about- called Henneman's Pass. Um, there's, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I know. I've never heard of Henneman's Pass. I probably know what no, you're thinking of. I don't know the name. I thought that yeah. was it. But what is- well, there's, uh, I mean, there's the Wasatch Front. There's, uh, this is the place Monument. I'm trying to think what you guys. The, okay, well, because uh, what happened driving down through the mountains, right? And yeah. it's time, and I'm, I'm with Shriekback. We're driving down to the mountains. All of a sudden, it starts to rain. 
Okay. Uh-huh. And the next few seconds, huge amounts of hail start coming down, pounding the van. And uh-huh. then in another five minutes, then it starts to snow to a complete whiteout. And this went on for like a half hour. Uh-huh. And I thought legend or story has it that when they, when they were looking for a place to settle, this happened to them. And, they, and then when they came through it, they said, oh, this is our home. I haven't heard that story, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it worked. <laughs> okay. You know? <laughs> After going through it, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you do kind of um, see, re- you have revelations, you know? Yes, yeah, exactly. it's, in the, it's in the dirt. Anyway. It's funny, I was thinking, bless Matthew Sweet's heart, because he used to come through Salt Lake City a lot, and not a lot of bands did back then. And yeah. so I've seen him live, I saw him live in the 90s three or four times. And which means I'm sure I've seen you live, but I didn't piece it together until just now, until getting ready to talk to you. Yeah, if it was the 90s, anywhere from like 91 to 97, it was probably me. Yeah. I mean, Richard, one summer, I think Richard Lloyd went out one, one summer, I think, but it was probably me there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it's crazy. I, uh, I'm gonna, I want to know more about Matthew here in a second. So after the outsets, my understanding is you went and started The Lovelies. And now I couldn't find the Lovelies. I found one song by the Lovelies on YouTube called Disconnected, and I loved it. So there was an album called Mad Orphan that went out like on a label. This was your new thing, right? But it didn't last very long either, correct? No, it didn't. I mean, it was kind of designed to be a one uh, one album thing, you know. I mean, okay. um, um, it was a band with my ex-wife, um, Cynthia Slate from the Bush Tetris. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, it was just designed to be a, a one album thing. And, you know, I mean, the pressures of having a band and having a band with your spouse is, is, in, is intense, you know, <laughs> <I bet it laughs> because is. never, you never get away from it. You never, never yeah. get away from anything. That goes for both parties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then what after lovelies is the next, the next thing Matthews or uh, no, Matthew, uh, Matthew sweet. Actually, even what's this before the lovelies? Let me think about this. Ooh. I mean, there was, um, before, I think this was before the Lovelies even. I um, yeah, because that would have been in the eighties. Um, I went out. With, um, I toured with Shriekback. Oh, that's right. So, okay, I didn't know what the timeline on that was. Yeah, yeah. Such so, a great band. They were a great band. They're like uh, incredibly just you know visceral and yes, and everything. You know, it's like just you know just um, great um, 
pumping dance music combined with rock and roll. And they're also a lot of fun to be on the road with, especially okay. when they're in the States. When they went back to England, they all started behaving, which I found rather funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> their families were there. But when they were here, it was like, you know, no holes barred, man. It's, really? It's, How did you even get that gig? I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily merged the two. They, um, I, I understood this more after getting to know them. They came to New York to start an American tour and fired their guitar player. Oh. Like as soon as they got here, okay. you know? And so then they just started looking around for, for guitar players. And I think it was, you know, um, through my wife who, um, uh, at the time, Cynthia, who knew Hugo Burnham, Yeah, you know, coming from Gang of Four, mm-hmm. and he was managing them. <clears throat> so uh, they suggested they call me up. So I went down and just, you know, and actually this is very soon after Danny Hirsch died, like, you know, my bass player. And I was really in the, you know, yeah. really and I, you know, kind of dragged my ass up to 30th Street and plugged in the guitar and started unleashing. And he said, oh, we like <laughs> so, so <laughs> with them, yeah. Huh. And then, um, oh, well, that's a nice steady paying gig, I'm guessing, for a couple of years, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it was not It was about a year, actually. I mean, okay. because, once again, I mean, you can only tour so much, Yeah. you know? And, 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 and like, you know, I, I had two situations like that. I mean, well, three, Foundations them and Matthew where um, it was pretty much touring all the time, you know, yeah. like, I mean, a good, at least 200, 300 days out of the year, you know? So, um, yeah. So the, I mean, when, when that ended and, you know, they went for another sound and everything um, on the, I think it was gunning for the Buddha, the next record, I forget, mm. but I mean, um, they didn't need like this big touring band with this, like, you know, uh, you know, guitar player cutting people's head off. That's all. <laughs> right. You, did you re- did you play anything on a on a Shriekback album, or was it just the touring? No, they're not just the touring. I think there's a live recording somewhere or something like that. Okay. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I was curious. Okay, yeah. so Matthew. Now Matthew, as we all know, Matthew Sweet. He puts out those two non-starter albums that don't sound anything like what he would become. And finally, with Girlfriend, I'm guessing he's either he takes it on himself, or a label gives him free reign to be what he wants to be. And you come in, and Richard Lloyd eventually comes in. He basically goes and just pilfers his favorite people from that scene, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he was a fan of that scene as well. Yes, yes, he did. And and you know, Robert Bob Quine, of course, as well. Yes, yeah. of course, and Bob Quine. Yes, the late great. Yeah. yeah. So how yeah. did you? How did? How did? It, did he call you? What was that initial meeting like? Well, I had kind of heard of him, okay. and I. And because girlfriend hadn't really hit yet, I mean, he had his album out called Earth, you uh-huh. know, and um, uh, I kind of heard of him as a singer songwriter, and <clears throat> and he called Bob actually to play on the record. I'm not on girlfriend. He called Bob to play on the record, mm-hmm. and um, you know, Bob did that, and he, and then so Matthew goes, well, you know, let's go out and tour. So Bob toured a couple of d- dates. Bob hates hated touring more than Richard did. Okay. Oh. Okay. I had uh, this is a side story. I had to, I had a connection with this Canadian promoter that was going to pay us this outrageous amount of money to play. So uh-huh. I, what, I called Richard. We had lunch and talked about it. And Richard goes, "I'll do it if Bob Bob will do it." Now I knew where this was going. <laughs> it's like <laughs> there wasn't enough money in you know all of the world right. to get him to go on the road, especially with us, you know. So no. So anyway, yeah. So so Bob calls me and goes, "Look, I have this you know record I played on. Um, I'm not going out on the road. You know, if you want, you know, you meet the guy." If you like him, if you like the music, you know, get together and we'll see. Uh-huh. So, you know, Matthew called me and we had we had a chat. 
he was living in Princeton, New Jersey at the time. Um, and um, I went down and, and saw him and, um, you know, he played me the songs and I liked them. It's good. You know, I liked the songs. They were good rock. Yeah. 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 Are you, I should have looked, forgive me. You mentioned this earlier. My favorite Matthew album is the 100% fun album, which I think is two after girlfriend. Do you play on that? I know Richard no. does. Yeah. Richard does a bit, but he, he did a lot of that himself. Okay. I thought so. If I yeah, remember. Yeah. 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 Were you at least touring with him at that point, or did you sort of moved on? That's why I break. I, I came a, a, um, a back on Altered Beast, but on 100% Fun, I'd taken a break. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I had Richard Lloyd on here a couple of years ago, and uh, it's kind of an infamous thing because about 20 minutes into the interview, he decided he didn't like me. And he said, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't like you. I don't like your questions. I'd just rather end it here. And so we, we ended it. So what was it like working with Richard Lloyd? He, uh, such a talented guitarist, but an interesting personality. Um, I've known Richard since the, you know, since the CB's days, you know, yeah. I mean, and he's been an interesting personality. Yes. Um, and he's actually even been here at the studio as well, because there's these um, people that come from France that want to, you know, him to play on record. So he comes here and he plays. And um, he's here playing at one point, and the guy wanted him to do something and do something else. And Richard goes, you're running out of money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, Richard, he's always been, a, you know, an interesting character. What can, what can I say? Um, yeah. And I've seen, you know, various um, extremes of that, you know? Yeah. 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 So, um, but, but when he comes here, I mean, I'm just, you know. Everyone knows me. I mean, I, you know, am, you know, pr pretty affable, but I, I really don't take shit in my studio or uh -huh. I'm playing like, you know, the, the, the line, the, the ball gets dropped. So he's always behaved here. You know? That's great. That's great. Well, there's no question. He's one of the greatest and most interesting and specific guitar players ever. And, um, but with that comes, you know, a interesting and specific personality too, apparently. So, yeah. okay. Now I wanted to get into some of your production work as well, because there's like the flesh tones and the font Leroy's. What was, uh, was it always a matter of, were you always having kind of production work in your sites as something you wanted to do? Did a band come to you like the, like the flesh tones and say, we love you. We want you to come do your magic with us. How does this work? How did you bridge into that career? Uh, well, because like I, I, I said before, it's like, I mean, even the, Blank generation, you know, the band got credited with producing. True, I good love, point. I, I love, I, I love hearing and kind of figuring out how they're made, you know. Yeah. So I mean, um, it, my my whole attraction to music was um the fade on a Power of Your Narrators song called Hungry, and the, the fade on that song I listened to over and over and over again, like the last I don't know five seconds of the song. I just it just blew, not because it was a fade; it was just like the perfect fade. It was great. Really. That, the snare sound to sat I can't get the satisfaction. These kind of things have always attracted me. So I've always kind of, especially since the eighties and I used it first as a tool to teach my band the songs. So I got into recording home recording, you know, mm -hmm. home four tracks and stuff like that. So I, you know, I, I you know, come and I make the whole song and I present it to the band and then everybody had an idea of what I was talking about. So, but then people started to come to me to record and produce them. I mean, on you know, what kind of, you know, local levels, and then more and more. There's a um, another band you, that you didn't mention called Hunks and His Punks. 
I don't know. I saw them listed on your resume, but I wasn't as familiar with them. They're really great. I mean, really. And, I mean, and I'll, I'll get to the flesh tones in a second, but they're really great because their concept looks great. And what it is, and and they they write their songs, and it's it's really great and beautiful. It's an openly gay guy, okay, okay. and they're singing Shang Shangri La's type music, you know, really like this kind of like kind of uh, format or whatever, you know, the neck type music, but you know their own original songs. All the um, players are, are women. Okay. Really? They're all playing, and, and they sing. As a matter of fact, one of them is still a good friend of mine, um, um, Aaron Emsley. She's, she's from Salt Lake City. No and, way. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and they sing so great when they're all together, you know? Like, I mean, I asked, I said, did you, were you in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? I mean, what's going on? Because you sing <laughs> so amazing. It's like, you know, I still hire her sometimes to come in. And like, if I have a group of people that are kind of this way in pitch and I yeah. get her in there, kinda, her voice just makes everything sound great. So, yeah. So I, 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 I did like one, two, I think two, maybe three albums with them. Um, and, and I, yeah, I, I love them. They were great. They were great. And then, you know, the Flesh Tones approached me. I love working with them because they were so incredibly pro professional. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of envision you know a balance because uh -huh. they had rehearsed their songs they've been playing together so long it's like going do their parts boom 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 and it's just music it's like magic yeah especially yeah. um <clears throat> that first record yeah um yeah the uh gods what what's the that take you didn't do them well yeah the one you did take such that album is great, and you did John Spitzer Blues, right? I worked with I worked with John. I was not as producer, but just basically as engineer because he was kind of a partner at my at the old studio I was at. Okay, and these projects, and John's really funny because you know I love working with him, but he would want to use the one thing in the studio always that was broken. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, no, nah, I'm sorry, we can't do that. I'll get it fixed soon. I'll fix it soon. But anyway, no, he's 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 really. He's really great. But yeah, I, I engineered for him. It was fun. Okay. Okay. What is Ivan Meets the Gummy Bear? A, a band. Um, Psycho Positive? Oh. 
positive. And actually, one of the singers is um, a singer and the bass player is a singer in my live band that um, I'm performing with um, next month. But yeah, um, it's a band called Psychopositive. They came in, they recorded some tracks and um, they, you know, to make an EP and they release them as they wanted to. But then they decided to make this one track called Bummy, Gummy Bear, which I thought was a really great track anyway. It kind of sounds like this kind of Led Zeppelin outtake or something. Right? If, uh-huh. I mean, it, it, that, that's kind of under, undermining it, but like, it's, it's great. So they said, we want you to, to like just completely go crazy with this. And, um, you know, just like make a, a dub mix, something like a dub mix. Like, you know, we had this one guy do it, but he didn't go far enough. So I thought, okay, you want me to go crazy? Here we go. And it kind of, it's a play on Ivan meets GI Joe, that clash song that I'm on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's what they call it. Ivan meets gummy bear. So I just kind of just morphed it and, you know, turned nice. it around. Yeah. Okay. okay. I was saving the clash. Tell me about your interactions with the Clash. You play on Sandinista. How does that call? Are you friends with them? Do you know them? How do you get involved in Sandinista? Um, we op- the Voidoids opened for them on our first European tour. Mm. Okay, so that's how I met them. Um, and and meeting them there. Um, well, first of all, it goes back before that because I knew Topper from the Foundation days before oh. he was. In- so when I walked into the, um, the rank hall, to the hall where we were playing, and saw them up on stage, not really knowing who the past were, to be quite honest, at the time, um, I saw Topper playing drums, and I went up to say, hey, you remember me? Like, you know, the, from Manny's rehearsal studios, blah, blah, blah. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he introduced me to the band. It turns out Mick and I are born the exact same minute. You know? What? Really? Much, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, because we go, yeah, that day, that year, what time of day do you know? I go, yeah. Yes. So we kind of, you know, became you know, friends that did that way, you know, so I mean, or, you know, um, uh, transitory friends, I should say, you know, yeah. we were always all over the place, but, right. um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So when they came to New York to record Sandinista, their plan was to just set up camp at electric lady and just stay there. Cause you know, they had Columbia records behind them and just stay there for a month and just come up with songs and stuff like that. So they, they called me up and said, um, yeah, you want to come down? Yeah, 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 yeah sure. I'd love to see you. Know, so my plan was just to go there and say hello. Mm-hmm. And say, hi, going? It's good to see you guys. And then they started the riff to the call-up. I mean, that's one of my I, favorite Clash songs. I said, Joe, give me your guitar. Because Joe was playing the grand piano at the time, you know. Um, I think Mick was, I forget, Mick was on bass. Um, Topper wasn't there. Mikey Dredd was on drums, I think. Um, yeah, so they started playing. It, it was just a jam, you yeah. know, that went on 
I don't know, 20 minutes or something like that, chord changes. And that's what I think they did a lot of that album. And then I, you know, said, you know, good to see you guys, blah, blah, blah. I went on my merry way. A couple months later, Mick calls me and says, are you going to go to Columbia and get your check? I'm like, my check for what? He goes, oh, you know, you're on the album. It's a single. I'm like, whoa. You know, so yeah, they chopped it up and made a song out of it, you know? Really? Yeah. So the one, and that's the only thing you did was play on the call up? Um, and Ivy meets G.I. Joe. Of course, in that one too. Yeah, that that came from a story I told them about, you know, my going to Studio Fifty Four once um, and being chased around by a bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah. Pardon? Why were you chased around by a bouncer at Studio Fifty Four? Well, because it was in the you know the waning days of Studio Fifty Four. I never went there in its heyday, but uh -huh. I got an invite to go there, and I thought I want to go see what this is about. So I go there, and it's like nobody there like nothing i mean there's literally five people or something you know and the whole gi entire giant place so it was like really on last legs you know so um meanwhile there's this guy just following me around i'm like going you know so i finally go what is your problem man he's like who, who are you he goes I'm checking on you and i so then you know kind of flared up not to an altercation because you know sure. like fighting especially with guys like you know seven feet taller than i am so oh. i mean but so um yeah so that, that and i told him the story and that's how that happened no way that's great okay we're coming up on time i want to know what one of your favorite stories is as i said you're you were there when some of the greatest music ever made was happening was in the air you contributed to it you played it as well do you have a favorite story or something from that era a favorite story oh god yeah you really put me on the spot did you ever meet a hero or see a show like what was the first time you saw the ramones or something like that did you date debbie harry did you i don't know anything i had a crush on debbie harry as most people did you know and she, <laughs> she was always always she played at my benefit she's always not played but she emceed the benefit um she's always been a sweetheart like one of the sweetest people you ever ever Good. ever wanted me really great um debbie harry, that's funny <laughs> <laughs> there's a famous picture of her and i on the beach um that was in Punk Magazine, actually. Okay, that was all character, character playing or something. Famous. Uh -huh. um, uh, um, oh, uh, I thought, uh, so much. I mean, I, I don't know. I think when you went downstairs to the bathroom, 
okay, it, at the bottom of the stairs was the men's room. And there was no door to the men's room. And there was no door to the bathroom, to the toilet stall. Uh-huh. So I remember running down to, to go to the bathroom. And there is Arta Lindsay at the bottom of the toilet, on the toilet, taking a crap. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Dead Boys, when they first came from Cleveland, they like had, they were more like an Alice Cooper type band. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Long hair and stuff like that. And then, you know, when they saw what was going on around them and like the whole English influence, especially, they, um, you know, started to cut the hair and like, you know, and um, kind of just changed their look. Oh, that is great. That's just gold. Did you ever hang out with the Ramones? I mean, obviously Marky, but did you, you know, did you, do you have a Joey story or a Johnny story or get high with Dee or anything like that? No, I, 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 I wasn't really close to any of them. You know, I mean, I, I was always nice and all that. Um, I didn't really have that much in common with Johnny at all. Um, but Joey later on um, started to, um, do these kind of little solo things at CB's, you know, and, and like, especially at CB's gallery. So I, I would come and play organ for him. And like, and him and I, like, you know, really? he, he's really knowledgeable about music. People don't know that. Yeah. He knows a lot about music. And um, um, so I, I would go and play organ while he was saying, you know, what, whatever song, um, you know, at, at the time. But um, uh, I'm trying to think of, I mean, Fred Smith and I from television became there big friends. Yeah. yeah. Because, I got him his apartment um, in my building upstairs on 12th Street, so he, he he stayed there. And then when I lost my apartment, I stayed on his couch. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. Wow. Exactly. How do you, do you, Ivan? How do you make a living today? I mean, you you is it for all from produ- producing other artists? Is it from touring? What do you do? Have you ever had to do something other than music? By the way, I get I get I get royalties as you see. I have a studio here. Yeah. Um, for- you know that that brings in that brings in money, and that's a good thing. I also teach post production audio to film students. Really? Because people don't realize when they want to make become a filmmaker. It's something I did for a while, actually. I learned like because I also wrote for a um, <clears throat> um, TV commercials and documentaries. I wrote and scored music and um, and and mixed it and everything. I still do that. I still mix films sometimes. Um, and but when people want to become Filmmakers, they don't realize that people got to understand what the people are saying. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like yeah. you get gorgeous shot in the world, you know, which most of them think that's all the stuff that matters. Like, because I'm in the mm-hmm. camera, and you know, and so they can be Spielberg or something. But if people can understand what's going on, what people are saying, they're walking out. So I teach them how to point the microphone at the person, you know, yeah. <laughs> etc. Yeah, so that you know, I um, I, I do that some parts of the year. Um, and you know, and the studio and like producing and just sometimes just recording people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's great. What about you personally? Are you married? Do you have kids? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, Cynthia and I, my ex-wife, we have a son named Austin Julian. He's like kind of a big deal in the noise rock world. You know, really? he actually, yeah. He just came back from, um, wherever was he, where he was, I think he was in, in from France and, and Germany. He just came back from a tour there. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, yeah. So, but, but I am remarried, but I don't have any kids right now except for him. Okay. And um, it was funny when he was growing up because there were guitars all around. There's a piano, you know. Uh-huh. And, I'm, and I'm going, listen, you know, you got to start with the rudiments. You got to listen to some like John Lee Hooker and stuff like that if you're going to play. I, I never pushed him to play. I thought, like, you want to do it, fine. It's here, you know. Yeah. Um, because he's a very good visual artist as well. Um, so, um, 
I said, you, you got to listen to like, you know, the, you know, the rudiments of the stuff. And he goes, Dan, you don't get it. You just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't that. get it. This guy has the balls to tell Ivan Julian he doesn't get it. Yeah, exactly. He goes, listen to the butthole surface, okay? And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a good smile. Oh, that's great. Well, Ivan, look, I, uh, I love just about everything you do. Thanks for all the good you've put in the world because uh, it makes a lot of us really happy. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. I, I mean, I think that's what I was put here for, to make to play music as opposed to um, fly around in a, in a plane with missiles like my father wanted me to. Oof, no, no, we don't <laughs> need that. We need you. Thank you, man, yeah. for everything. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you, so, thank you so much, John. All right, there you have it, Ivan Julian. Something I meant to mention earlier... This was a request from one of our buddies, James Milton. Thank you, James, for uh, for uh, requesting Ivan. That was really smart. James, by the way, lives like a few blocks from me, and we figured this out after the fact. And so we've been to a concert, and uh, he's like a neighbor and a friend. So anyway, thank you, James. We didn't find each other until the podcast, actually. So thank you, James. Perfect idea with Ivan. Um, I want to close it out with one more song off of the Swing Your Lanterns album that's coming out again in February on the 17th. This is I Am Not a Drone Alone. Great song, and keep your eyes peeled for the album because it's really, really solid. I like it a lot. Now, next week is our last episode of the year, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be another twofer, okay? And it's a twofer. <laughs> These two people don't have anything to do with each other, except that I need to get their uh, their episodes out, so why not? The first part is with one of the biggest pop stars of the 80s, pop stars, okay? And then the second half is with the front man of a band that I have been very vocal about loving on here. In fact, we had a member of the band on here already several years ago. And um, so now I don't, as you guys know, I don't double dip into the same band very often because I already, I feel like that story is already out there and there's lots of other people to to um, tell to hear from but th there's a unique situation here because this is one of the greatest bands ever and uh, I saw him live recently and so I want to make sure that we chatted and we did so anyway that's what's coming up next week huge thanks to yeah the man Mikevich, my right man right hand man for everything thank you buddy uh, you guys can like our page on Facebook you can send us a message on there you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We um, we have a deep dive in the can, but I bet it doesn't come out until after the holidays. It's really up to yeah. Having said that, uh, it's almost Christmas. So I just want to say thank you and Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Thank you for supporting us, for being our friends, for getting to know some of us personally. It's so fun to... Uh, you know, get to know some of you. I mean, I, re I rely on your friendship. So thank you for all for being who you are and for su supporting this little project of Yan and I's and uh, finding some value in it. I'm so grateful to all of you. That is my Christmas gift. Thank you. You are my Christmas gift. All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. <laughs>